Well, welcome to you again. I would ask that you uh, would please turn uh, with me in your Bibles to the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. Our particular focus this morning is going to be verses 5, 6, and 7 in chapter 2, but we will read all of verses 1 through 10, which begins on page 1159, and if memory serves me, I think it concludes on 160. And so hear the words of God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. There are at least three things I want to help you see this morning as Paul charts out in these three verses, verses 5, 6, and 7, a kind of chronological progression of who we are in Christ and what it means to be in Christ and what Christ has done for us. He speaks of our past in that first portion of chapter 2, doesn't he? It's all of grace, which is why he says, by grace you have been saved. He speaks of our present, which is glorious. We've been raised and seated in the heavenly places. And he speaks of our present and our future, which is the proof of God's kindness. So our past is grace. Our present is glory, and because I'm not good at perfect alliterations, our future is proof. Okay? And so I'll start with the first one. Our past is grace. And appropriately, what I want to talk to you about this morning is an interruption, as my daughter proceeds to interrupt me. In the last sermon on Ephesians two weeks ago, before uh, Will stepped in and, and, and very, uh, did a very, very fine job of, of preaching on the, uh, the moment when Joseph says to his brothers, What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Thanks again, Will, for doing that. Um, So so Paul focuses on God's work to raise us up out of spiritual death. This is what he says, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together. You can read that as at the same time as Christ. Together with Christ. And then there's this sort of interruption into Paul's own thinking. He says, you were dead, you've been made alive, alive." then he interrupts his own train of thought to say, by grace you've been saved. He then says in verse 6, by grace you've been saved and, getting back on track, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want to show you kind of the sequence of events here, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and then you were made alive together with Christ. That's verse 5. Raised up with Him, seated with Him in the heavenly places. So you see the progression. Dead, made alive, raised up, seated in the heavenlies. 
But did you notice what I skipped? Paul, I mean right there, what I just did, it's that interruption. Paul interrupts himself, as it were, his own flow of thought, to throw out this joyful word, by grace you have been saved. He repeats it in verse 8, which we'll get to next Sunday. But let's talk about it just for a moment. Grace is, to put it lightly, a really important concept in the New Testament. We should take some time to reflect on that, especially since we've named our church for the whole concept, right? Grace is, for the Apostle Paul, the one term that most clearly expresses his understanding of God's great work in salvation. His whole message is the gospel of grace. If you look in Acts 20, Paul is talking to the elders in Ephesus, the same church to which he's writing, right? He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course, that's what we just sang about, and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to, here it is, the gospel of the grace of God. Right? So, so given the opportunity to attach a word, a, a defining word, a clarifying word to gospel, the Apostle Paul goes with grace. Now you might say that Paul has trouble talking about the gospel without talking about grace. And fair enough, you really can't do that. But what is grace? All manner of definition floats around. This is a definition that I penned that I offer up for your consideration. Grace is God's gift of His abundant kindness to us in Christ that we could not earn and do not deserve. Every part of that is important. Grace is not God pretending that your sin doesn't matter. The cross proves that. Grace is not God being drawn to you because you were so much more spiritually sensitive than everybody else. You were as sensitive as a corpse, right? right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You see, our grasp of grace is rooted in our awareness of sin. That's why Paul starts with, you were dead in your trespasses. God, grace is not amazing if it doesn't save us from death and hell. God is the actor, the one doing the action in all this. It's not to say that we don't make a real choice in salvation. We, we do. We do. Okay, when we come to God, we are choosing to follow Jesus. Now, we would understand that that is a choice we are able to make only because of the Spirit's work in us, but it is a real and authentic choice. But notice that Paul frames God as the one doing the things here in chapter 2. The only thing we are doing in chapter 2 is the being dead, at least so far, right? That's the only thing we're doing is the being dead. Look at the verbiage. We were dead, and then you've got, He made us alive. Now notice, not even we lived, right? Which would also kind of be still passive, still be God doing it possibly, but there's there could be a hint there of our action. We lived or made ourselves live. No, the, the way it's phrased, He made us alive. God is the one doing the action. He raised us up with Him. Not even we got up, but He raised us up. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Not even we sat down in the heavenly places. He seated us. God is the one doing the things. 
as we've gone through chapter 2 so far. Paul speaks this way, that we might properly understand our past and our present, we'll get to our future, as, as what God has done. That we might understand our past is what God has done, our present is what God is doing, our future is what God will do, right? That is actually what our passage this morning is about in the sense of that chronological arrangement, right? You were this way, then God did this, now you're here in this particular location, heavenly places, we'll talk about that. You're, now you're seated in the heavenly places, and then the future, the, the, the coming ages of what God is going to do in Christ Jesus. What does this tell us? It tells us at the very least, this is what I'm offering you to think about this week, the way you and I narrate our own lives is really important. Paul could have said, think about it this way, Paul could have said, even when we were unbelievers, just remove the language of death for a minute, dead in trespasses, even when we were unbelievers, we then believed in Him. By grace we've been saved, and now we believe and seek to serve God and neighbor by love and good works. Okay, all of that's true. We were unbelievers, and we believed, by grace we've been saved. We now believe in God and seek to serve Him and neighbor through love and good works. There's nothing wrong with those words the way I put them. But did you notice that that narrative is framed in a way that focuses on what we are doing? Rather, Paul says, here's the story of our lives. It's a story of what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do. Do you tell the own story of your life, past, present, or future, in that way? Is your life an adventure based on how interesting you are? Or is it a narrative of the work of God, even if you don't have all the details worked out yet? You can still start your sentence with, here's what God is doing. This is one of the simplest ways we can, as it were, speak evangelistically to our neighbors. What's your life story? Tell me about yourself. Oh, I would love to. God raised me up out of spiritual death. And, and, you know, last year he carried me through a really difficult season. He is teaching me patience right now. He is humbling me right now. He gave me a new job last week. He made me realize that I've taken my family for granted. He's helping me to see my own bitterness. I was dead and he made me alive. Do you see the difference? When you narrate your own life as stuff that God has done, is doing, will do. Learn how to tell your story as the work of God. When I was in Edinburgh, I got to do a good bit of research on a man named Thomas Shepard. He was a Puritan minister and one of the original founders of Harvard back when the mission of Harvard was to train pastors, if you can believe that. The central work for my research was a book that was edited by a fellow named Michael McGifford. Uh, the name of the book was God's Plot, because it was all about God's sovereignty. God's Plot, Puritan Spirituality, and Thomas Shepard's Cambridge. And uh, it was all about Thomas Shepard and his church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I think it's about 30 bucks these days, but uh, I checked this morning. You can find used copies on, I think, Abe books for like 6 or $7 if you want one. And the book contains three parts. Shepard's own autobiography, 
which, guess what, is written as a whole lot of God did this, and then God did that, and then God did this. He knew, he knew how to tell his narrative is what the story of what God was doing. And then I think another part of the book is the accounts of his church membership interviews. So people that would move to Cambridge and then want to join his church, he kept notes on kind of their testimonies, which is kind of cool to read, just about sort of Puritan testimonies, and it's from, in this case, their pastor's perspective. And my favorite part was Thomas Shepard's own private journal. In that journal, what Shepard did is he recorded day-to-day events in his life and then tried to interpret them through the lens of the grace of God. He would say, you know, I, that today, this morning, I faced this hardship. I struggled with this depression. He was, he was a very depressed guy, very anxious, um, and even, even writes from time to time, uh, I struggled this morning with atheism in my heart, right? He's doubting his faith. I fought with this doubt. I had to face this or that disappointment. And then you find this line in almost every entry, and then I saw... And then I saw that God was working patience in me. And then I saw that God was teaching me how to trust Him. And then I saw that God was reminding me of the brevity of my own life. I was despairing. I was feeling that my work was worthless. I was feeling abandoned. And then I saw God reminding me that I need a mediator and that I have the Lord Jesus. And then I saw and then I saw, and then I saw. McGifford, the guy who edited the book, he calls this shepherd's all-seeing eye, as in the letter I, right? And then I saw, I saw, I saw. What is Shepherd doing? He was applying the lesson the Apostle Paul had taught him while Paul was sitting in a prison cell writing to the church in Ephesus. And that is how you want your past and your present to be framed in your life as the faithful work of God as best you can understand it. I saw the beauty of Jesus. I heard the good news of the forgiveness of my sins. I came to Him gladly. And then I saw that the story of my life is actually the story of a dead man who's been made alive together with Christ. Furthermore, not only was I made alive and saved by grace, I have been raised up and seated in the heavenly places. That's the next point. So our our past is, is a story of grace. Our present is a story of heavenly glory. Verse 6, just by way of review, yeah, sorry, and and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, okay, so there's that in Christ Jesus again, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, that we've seen since chapter 1. Let me review with you, just a little brief review on union with Christ. We are united to Christ under the principle of of what I uh, told you back in chapter 1, covenant headship. That is, Adam was the first federal covenant head of the human race. That means that when Adam was standing in the garden, pondering whether or not to eat the fruit, the whole human race was standing there with him. When Adam ate, so did I. So did you. When Adam sinned and fell in the garden, I sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Because I was in Adam and so were you. And so the curse fell, just as the curse fell on Father Adam, it falls on me because Father Adam is my covenant head. So this leaves me without any hope to save myself. I need another representative. I need a better covenant head. This is why Jesus Christ is called the second Adam. He is our federal 
covenantal head. And if Jesus is my covenant head, my covenant representative, that means that when he died, I died too. When he was buried, I was buried too. When he rose again, I rose again. And if he does all that as my representative, then that is just. It's justice because we are covenantally connected. This is again why Paul can say, I have been crucified with Christ. Right? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what it means to be in Christ. His death is our death. It's not just that we don't have to die for our sins, though that's true. It means we've already died because our representative has died. It's not just that Jesus has risen to new life. His resurrection is our resurrection, and so we shall live forever in Him. Now, I think many of you probably grasp that. We've been over it a few times in this series. You get why Paul would use the language of dying with Christ and even rising with Christ. But what about this seating, seated language? Okay, okay. We, we've died with Christ. I get that. We've risen to new life in Christ, got it? But Paul says that God the Father has seated us with Him in the heavenly places. There's a sense in which you want to look around and go, I'm seated in a church pew. <laughs> I'm not in heaven. What is Paul talking about? Well, the first way I want to get at this is for you to think of someone who has applied to college and they get that acceptance letter from their first choice school, right? The letter arrives on a warm Monday morning, and obviously they're full of joy, absolutely elated. I got in, I got in, right? The letter says, congratulations, you are now officially enrolled at Bartholomew Smith University or whatever. And you talk to them the next day, the Tuesday afternoon, right? And you say, well, you must be pretty excited. What's... What's the field of study that you're most interested in? And they say, well, you know, as a university student, right, I'm interested in all sorts of things. And it might strike you as odd, uh, even a bit silly at first. You might be thinking, as a university student, okay, kiddo, you haven't even packed your bag yet or looked at your first syllabus. And look, fair enough, there's a sense in which they are not yet a student. But as they clutch that acceptance letter in their hands, there's a real sense in which they already are a university student. It's official. It's as good as done. The only thing between present reality and future fulfillment of reality is time. It's just time. Paul says, we've been raised with Christ... And our Father has seated us with Him in the heavenly places. This is the way that Paul likes to talk about our future certainty. We're already enrolled. Our seat is already secured. It's as good as ours, so why not talk about it like it is? He puts it in the, past, in the, in the present tense. Oh, actually, the past tense has seated us with Him. And that's a way of... So, so, so to put the future in the past tense is a way of communicating certainty. Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. We're not there yet. Oh yeah, but we are though. 
From God's perspective, we are. That's how certain we are of it. That's how things are to God who has all of time in front of Him. We are so certain of this future reality, we will speak of it as accomplished in the past and the present. So, okay. So having heard that explanation, you might be thinking, okay, all right, got it. So this is just sort of a, like a flowery, spiritual, ethereal way of talking, right? It's not just that, though. Paul talks this way because it really is true of us uh, to, to, um, to speak in kind of a silly way. He speaks this way because it's really real. While the glories of heaven and new creation are still ahead for us, our enthronement is already accomplished. What would it mean to enter the throne room and be seated next to the son of a king? Well, it would mean that, congratulations, you're now a prince, right? You have the new status. And so this is really real for the adopted sons of God. As I live day in and day out, yes, I still see myself of the perspective of, through the perspective of my present struggles and failures and indwelling sin that I'm uh, by the power of the Spirit making war on, but God has so totally secured my eternal destiny that He allows me to see that I also already possess all the glory that heaven offers. And what this does for us today is it shines a bright light on our own helplessness to create or fashion our own status before God. Brian Chappell puts it this way. He says, My status as an enthroned heir of heaven, despite my presence as a finite and frail creature of earth, underscores my helplessness, underlines my helplessness to secure what salvation provides. So it does. And so our past is evidence of God's grace. Our present enthronement is a way of speaking of the glory that God calls us to. And finally, this third point, our future is proof. Look at verse 7. When we come to the words in verse 7, so that, right? That's a purpose clause. We're about to find out why God did all that stuff. All that making us alive, saving us by grace, raising us up with Christ, seating us in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is the purpose of your salvation? Why did God do what He did? Asking this question might provoke all sorts of answers, and I think answers that you can justify biblically. I also think a few different answers you could justify just in the last chapter 1 and this part of chapter 2 in Ephesians. Why did God save me? Because He loves me. That's a good answer. Because He's building a kingdom from every tribe and language and nation. Apparently, He wants my tribe, my language, and my nation in there. Uh, because he wanted to. <laughs> All of those are correct. Which one does Paul go with here? Basically, Paul says God saved you because God is a show-off. Paul says that God did this so that in the coming ages, and by that I think Paul means today and tomorrow and every day after that into eternity, he might show, indeed the the Greek word means put on display the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
Christian, you are proof that God is kind. Kind to rescue you. Kind to save you. Kind to make you alive. Kind to raise you up. Kind to seat you with Christ in the heavenly places. If it helps you to think about it, think, think of it as, uh, though this is not quite right, it still might just work for help day to day. He has, he has a seat next to himself reserved for you with a little name card on it. Seating you with Christ in the heavenly places. He saves you that others might see you and say, look what God is doing with him. Wow, God is kind. The world needs to see the kindness of God on display because when the wicked prosper and when their plans succeed, the world is so quick to despise God for it. And against that unbelief, you and I are walking proof that God is kind. And I'm not talking about, I'm not just talking about sort of high drama testimonies, right? The, the, big, the big sort of blaring testimonies about I was a drug addict and I was into all sorts of nasty, horrible darkness and God rescued me out of that. Though those are great. I'm also talking about the everyday works of God. Wow, my God is patient with me. How kind. Or, or let's do it by the observation of your neighbor. Wow, that guy is patient at work with a hard boss. Difficult co-workers. What sort of God does he have who gives patience like that? God is kind. Wow! You know, those two, their marriage was a total wreck and God rebuilt it. This God must be kind. Wow! They were able to find courage even in the midst of their anxiety, their fear, their depression. God is so kind to them. But those are just faint echoes compared to the glory of salvation. That when we look at each other, well, I mean, let's be honest. If you just look around the room right now, right? I mean, aren't you kind of amazed at the sort of people God saves? If not, then you don't know us well enough. Christian, you should always be amazed that God saved you. There's a temptation common to all of us, I think, especially that... It's just common to our flesh. The longer you've been a Christian, the more you are tempted to be less amazed by it. And the more disappointed you are, uh, you, you find yourself e- easy to get disappointed with the way God has arranged your circumstances. Right? And I'm not saying that your circumstances don't hurt. Sometimes they really do. But we're always coming back, back to amazement at what God has done. Amazing love, how can it be for, oh my God, it found out me. And so if, if, you, if you take all the testimonies and line them up in the contest for which ones are the most spectacular, I mean, put it this way, we're all winners in the contest of testimonies because all the testimonies reveal God's kindness, right? I grew up in the church and so have been steadied by my faith for as long as I can remember. Oh my goodness, is that not God's kindness? What we, what we learn here in this text is that our God means to make us certain of who He is. God is committed to being rightly known. 
God is committed to being rightly known. That's why he's given us his word. That's why he illuminates his word by his Holy Spirit. It is remarkable how much our culture, and if we're honest, how much we take for granted the idea that there's always a temptation to custom make your own concept of God. Right? Here's the way I think of God. Okay. Is that how God thinks of God? That should be your next question. Is that how God has told you to think of God? Is that who God has said He is? So who is He? Kind to His people, saving them by grace, raising them up, seating them with Him, securing their eternity. All of these manifold benefits and blessings of being in Christ. Now, it is true that we don't come to Christ merely for the blessings He offers. Our message is not just believe and you'll get stuff from God. Believe now and get peace and comfort. You won't be as anxious and uh, you'll, get, you'll get forgiveness so you won't feel guilty and so on. We, we don't offer the benefits apart from the Savior. But at the same time, it's impossible to preach Christ without offering all of His benefits. That's what we see here in our text. Paul can't speak of what Christ has done without also speaking of God's kindness to bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So who are you, right? You are proof of God's kindness. Now and forever. Now and in the ages to come. So this morning, let your heart take courage. I know more than a few of you feel like you have long roads behind you and still longer roads ahead. You feel like you've been praying for the same thing for so long. You need the Psalms if you're going to persevere in prayer. Let me just say that. You need, you need, the Job, uh, you need Job's perspective, right? Even if you slay me, I will trust in you. Some of you are wrestling with doubts and questions you are afraid to mention. And let me tell you, doubt and and wrestling with those sorts of things, doubt loves isolation. Doubt loves to echo off the walls of your mind without any other voices speaking in. No, don't talk about your doubts and your questions. Christians hate it when you do that. That's how doubt grows until it just owns you. Or maybe you're constantly tempted to anger or bitterness. If only everyone around you could be more like you, right? Then we would all finally be happy. Bitterness requires pride to survive. And in comes the Apostle Paul with chains around him and says, Pride? (laughs) That's pretty funny. You were dead. (laughs) You got brought to life. You got raised up. You got seated with Jesus forever. And you think you have anything to boast about? Or maybe you're concealing sin because you either don't believe God can deal with it or you're afraid He will if you confess it out loud to an elder. And to you, I would just say, are you tired yet? Come and welcome because God is kind. He is immeasurably kind. That's what Paul says. The immeasurable grace is in kindness. 
God is immeasurably kind, and He intends to make you proof of that. And so let our God be glorified, and let us be the reasons that He shows off what He can do. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, so we ask for faith to believe these things. To receive them from you is good and glorious, even, even to receive a hard providence from your hand. It is hard to see your kindness through the fog of affliction. And so I pray for those who are having trouble seeing this morning, that you would open their eyes to your kindness to them in Christ Jesus, that you would not grant them to nurse their doubts in isolation, that you would permit the... Uh, the exposure of, of the doubt, the exposure of all the difficulties, that you would grant healing and that you would indeed continue to show off your delight to save, to rescue, and to bless your people. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>